welcome to episode number 92 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode will be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin, I am the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Our guest today is Ernie Smith, editor of Tedium, a website and newsletter that, in its own words, tries to make boring things interesting. Ernie's here today to talk to us about something recently republished from Tedium's archives, an article about the Sharkwire Online, a totally unlicensed device that brought internet connectivity to the Nintendo 64, sort of. Ernie, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. I'm surprised it took this long. I know. Hello. How's it going? Great. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about the Sharkwire, but really, I think we need a little background. So take us to the beginning and tell us about the, the, the Action Replay, uh, a name that, that some listeners have probably heard of, but, but many, including myself, uh, probably don't know the entire history of. Uh, the Action Replay is a really fascinating piece of kit. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those devices, um, that, I'm sure I'm sure Americans are probably more familiar with the Game Genie, which uh, was kind of the big example of a cheat code device that, you know, hit in the late 80s with the Nintendo Entertainment System and the Super NES and so on and so forth. Uh, but in the case of the X Replay, that actually has a little bit of history that predates uh, predates Nintendo a little bit. Um, it was actually first uh it actually first appeared on a couple of the commodore computers including the commodore 64 and the amiga and basically you know one of the things i sort of mentioned in in the piece is that in many ways the name action replay lost a little bit of its clarity as as the video game industry sort of evolved but you know when it first came about it was actually a pretty cool device it you know, it was able to not only like, you know, save, you know, save games, it was actually able to just basically back up whole games onto a cartridge, which, uh, you know, at the time, you know, when a lot of people were using floppy disks to sort of, you know, keep games into, you know, keep games in, in a way that was, you know, easy to save and, you know, easy to, <laughs> you know, easy to share around, like, you know, this is, this is obviously pretty cool, but, <laughs> you know, so in many ways, it's really fascinating how this type of, you know, this type of system evolved. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because over time, um, you know, the action replay, while it was like very well known outside of the U.S., um, you know, over, I, I think that it sort of became a, a liability of a name and eventually it was renamed for the U.S. market. Well, right. I mean, action replay makes sense if what you're doing is storing your game state on a cartridge so that it can be retrieved later. But um, what you're kind of saying, though, is that it, it essentially uh, it, it, its its main use case ended up being much like the Game Genie, right? Which is a device that could could modify games usually for cheating, right? Cheat codes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think that I think that in many ways it was sort of a it was a little bit of a branding problem, I guess you could say. You know, I guess in an era of turbo graphics and blast processing, it sort of lost a little bit of its relevance, I guess. <laughs> well, the first time I remember seeing the name Action Replay, I think, was like Sega Saturn. And I 
did not understand what that meant. And I didn't understand what it meant until your article, actually. I just never <laughs> thought to look it up. <laughs> I never put any thought into it. I'm like, okay, it's Game Genie. Got it. It's just yeah. a name for a Game Genie. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that's really fascinating about all that is just, you know, it. I think that when I first came up about it, it was probably, it was probably like an old issue of EGM circa 92, 93. I feel like I read that magazine religiously around that time. <laughs> um, and I, I think that, you know, I, I think for me, like, I never got a chance to use one as a kid, but I was fascinated by it, you know, from a distance just because I'm always fascinated by things from a distance. But I think that in terms of this, it was really cool because it seemed like it had some functionality beyond what a traditional game genie could do. But also on top of that, it was, you know, it's sort of like, you know, sort of wondering, okay, well, what's on the other side of the street? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think, I think that's a small piece of history that might get forgotten is that there were weirdos like you and me, Ernie, who were like interested in the things, you know, between the cracks when it came to video games, like, I uh, the the Game Age, for example, a pretty obscure handheld that originally came from Taiwan. Uh, there were two page ad spreads in EGM, and it's not like none of us had heard of it. Like I I poured over those ads and was fascinated by this weird budgety video game thing that that no one I knew had. Um, and I don't know. Like maybe this is a weird aside, but it's like no, let's not let's not get forgotten. Some of us were weirdos before it was cool. Oh yeah, and I think that so many of us weirdos, you know, were just like, you know, I, I remember I remember as a kid going to the video store and and just being fascinated by by the laser active that was like up, mm-hmm. you know, up on the shelves high up, you know, that like I would never ever use unless I somehow convinced my my parents that like renting a console for 30 bucks a night was was worthwhile <laughs> um but i think at the same time like you know some of this at least for me was just like i didn't get a home computer until i was like 11 or 12 and i remember going to the library knowing that like a home computer was a possibility of a thing coming and like i would just read about like computers and like old issues of bite or something like that. And I'm sure that that did something to me. It somehow broke my brain, but um, you know, as a result, now I'm here and chatting with you. <laughs> we're, we're on a total aside right now, but I just want to say that there are still very weird things being produced right now. And mm-hmm. I think that there's not a lot of weirdos looking at the right now. We're all kind of looking backwards. Um, I just learned about something called the wow cube, which is like a, it's like eight computers in a Rubik's cube and all of the games involve being Rubik's cube. Anyways, the point is people are still making really weird video game stuff right now. It's just a, it's not an EGM anymore. So uh, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> to get back to, uh, to uh, the action replay and the, the shark, shark wire. Oh my gosh. I'm never going to feel like I'm saying that name. Shark wire just feels like the wrong name. I don't know. I know. And they, I mean, we'll get to this, but there was another proposed name for it that I think works better than net shark. Anyways, yeah, <laughs> I'll, we're, we're jumping way ahead. So we'll jump back here. Um, so this is a, a company out of the UK, right? And they had to make it to the US. And we talked already a little bit about how um, there was a, you know, 
they were going to be running up against competition from the Game Genie and they might have to rebrand. So can you tell us a little bit about that, how it made its way over here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that happened over time, I'm sure that there was probably a little bit of marketing that, that happened beforehand. You know, obviously we saw it in the pages of EGM back in the day, but you know, eventually this company called Interact, which uh, sold accessories in the U.S. market, uh, scored a licensing deal with with Daytel, the manufacturer of it, and and gave it a much more blast processing kind of name, I guess you could say, uh, the Game Shark, which I'm sure a lot of people who played video games in the late 90s uh, remember very well. So, okay, let's talk about this device. So why would someone in the year 2000 want to bring their video game console onto the internet? Well, you know, one of the things that is worth keeping in mind about uh, about this period of, uh, you know, of computing, you know, just beyond gaming, like just computing in general, is that there were a lot of attempts to take the internet and try to make it something that was an accessory to somebody's life. Uh, you know, for example, um, there was, uh, you know, there was web TV, which was a startup company that Microsoft eventually bought. And it was essentially the internet for your living room. Um, in many ways, the shark wire, uh, online definitely has a lot of that sort of web TV kind of vibe. Uh, very much it, it sort of was about trying to get people who had never owned a home computer onto this cool thing called the internet for the first time. And there were many more, much weirder attempts than even this at the time. Um, you know, for example, uh, three comms, Audrey uh, was, was released during this period and essentially was a little computer like device that you put in your kitchen that allowed you to like check your, check your email and it had like a pen that you could like use to interact with the screen. And, you know, so within that broader context, there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's a whole bunch of attempts to get people on the internet. The interesting thing about the shark wire, at least in my view, is that they were trying to market this kind of advice, this kind of device to seven year olds. You yeah, know. the the age range you put in there, um, or or that uh, I should say, uh, interact and uh, the people behind the shark wire um, thought they were marketing to was weirdly young. I mean, seven to fourteen, and they called that you know the core gamers. Um, I don't, I don't know, I don't know that they need to put seven year olds on the internet on through the Nintendo sixty four. That's a that's a strange strange age range. Yeah, and I think that I think that it was sort of a weird time to do it from a regulatory standpoint too, because uh, you know the you know let me make sure I get the let me make sure I get this right. But uh, COPPA, the the main law sort of regulating how you know how kids are marketed to on the internet had just been passed, so they they literally were trying to make a device that was you know being heavily regulated for kids. <laughs> so it was it was a very it was a very interesting time to do that. And I think in many ways it sort of limited what exactly the device could be. Well I I find the whole thing I don't know. So you're you're marketing to kids, seven to fourteen. The 
the <laughs> there's a picture in your article of the packaging. The packaging looks like this high tech like PC accessory from the 90s, right? It does not look, you know, there's it's not like colorful. It doesn't look safe or anything. This does not look like something that a parent I mean, who's buying this? It's the parents. It's not the kids, right? So right. this does not look like something that a parent is going to recognize and be like, oh, now my kid can go safely on the internet. There's nothing on the packaging about how safe it is. There's no like, you know, parents magazine, like award thing on it or whatever. It just looks like a piece of tech and I don't get it. And it's got the name Sharkwire, which just sounds like it's for like edgy teenagers. Right. Yeah. And and like the really great part about all this um is that the commercials for this are clearly of that. They're clearly anything, these commercials. They, they're, they are they're the just, opposite of clear. I don't even know what this product is from watching yeah, this commercial. They're, they're clearly not being marketed to the people that they say that they're marketing it to. It's like, you know, advertising that like has an X-Files, like, you know, Jason Bourne style of like, you know, action adventure kind of thing going on and it just it doesn't make sense the promo video that you know was also released for this thing which has some more of that like quick edit mtv style stuff that was like everywhere in the late 90s like i just don't i i just don't get it like i i i feel like one of the things that i i think is i think is very strange about this device is like on top of the fact that, like, it, you know, it's an unlicensed device. It's like an unlicensed unlicensed device that, like, apparently had a huge marketing budget, or you know, at least tried to carry itself that way. And as a result, like, it just sort of led to this weird, like, okay, well, we clearly have to like reach like whoever's watching NTV or like you know compete with all the Cartoon Network stuff that's happening, and you know early 2000. I mean, this thing clearly had a uh, no, no marketing identity, I guess, um, or a, a clear clash of uh, what they thought the marketing identity was. I mean, um, I don't know. I, I think we should back up maybe a little bit and talk about what exactly uh, you would see if you were the 7 to 14 year old kind of using this device. Right. So it's, it's kind of like a, a, kids like an AOL kids kind of experience right it's just a very like walled off you know we've chosen these sites that are safe for you kind of internet yeah and you know it's it's very much like you know you you get access to a handful of sites one of which is you know game shark related like where you can like access codes and information about like how you know what you know what games you can you can play you know with your game shark um and you can you can do email you know there's there's a whole lot of like heavily curated experience you know it's it's funny because people people say about web tv that it's sort of like not the real internet it doesn't feel like the real internet experience this is like a subset of what what one would get with web tv it's it's sort of like um if you're if you're like just surfing through you know AOL MSN and all the locks were all, all the parental controls were on and you could only go a few places just it, it's kind of strange how that all 
you know, sort of <laughs> how it all sort of works out, I guess. And I mean, I get it. I really do. Like the, the idea is it's a safe internet for kids. It's, it's baby. It's Fisher price is my first internet. Right. And, and it is actually a pretty good quote unquote computer to introduce that in at the time. It's, it's like the, the, the safe Nintendo console that these kids are playing Zelda on or whatever it, it, it makes a kind of sense. And I just, I'm not getting it from any of the marketing. I don't understand why it, like, I can't imagine that the edgy tone of this marketing uh, survives into the actual online experience of, of being on this thing. I mean, do we even know, do we have any like surviving footage or screenshots or anything of what browsing was? Yeah. I mean, uh, there was actually a, a very, um, you know, one of the, one of the marketers of this device, uh, Jay Randy Gordon, actually put out a Sharkwire online story that sort of breaks down, like, the, you know, sort of the approach that they took with this device. And, you know, it, it, shows, it shows certain things like how, you know, how the experience works. You know, they, they play up like, oh, well, now you have a place where you can find you know where you can where you can find your codes not that you couldn't do this on you know your packard bell computer at the time i guess <laughs> um but you know it you know from that perspective you know the footage of it is is really you know it, it kind of shows like it, it kind of shows that they had like put all this work into like sort of this aol type experience and you know the thing is they they priced it like terribly too it's like ten dollars a month for 10 hours of access mm-hmm. to email and <laughs> you know and, and lots of you know and, and lots of cheat codes i guess <laughs> so it was is very much a it was very much a product looking for our market and not finding it <laughs> and just to jump back into the like development of this a little bit um this so this is a device for the Nintendo 64 and I was always like why you know why the Nintendo 64 that's kind of the it's kind of the loser of that console generation I mean it's it's certainly not you know the PlayStation was uh did quite a bit better in that console generation so the Nintendo 64 um kind of seemed like a weird choice for it um but there's some interesting history in here so this is this company is uh, or the people who worked on it were were Netscape people, right? People, uh, the founders of uh, of Netscape, and those guys came from Silicon Graphics, which worked on the Nintendo sixty four. Am I am I getting that correct? Actually, actually, um, one of the things that happened is that there was an attempt at an online service. Actually, there were multiple attempts at online services for the Nintendo sixty four that were more sanctioned by Nintendo, uh, but we never saw in the U.S. Like the 64 disk drive, I assume is what you're referring to here. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, and, and it's really fascinating because uh, you know, there was there was a point where after after he had worked on um, uh, Mosaic, uh, Mark Andreessen, who went on to found Netscape with uh, Jim Clark of uh, SGI, he actually. You know, they actually looked into the idea of making an online service for the N sixty four, you know, tied to the tied to the disk drive, and they ended up not doing it in part because 
it, you know, they wouldn't have had really had much ownership of it. Like it would have been owned by Nintendo. So instead they decided to fund a little company called Netscape. So I guess uh, we, uh, we kind of, you know, we kind of, yeah, it kind of came out best for everybody in that situation. <laughs> Everyone um, except Nintendo, who decided to keep going with the 64DD anyways, even though half the stuff they wanted to do for it, they just were like, ah, never mind about that internet part. Never mind about that uh, multiplayer part. Yeah, and and it's and it's really fascinating because one of the services, or you know, the service that they actually uh, decided to launch um you know that that came that came into life uh, was called Randnet, and um, and and you know it obviously only launched in the uh, Japanese market. Sort of, um, you you can sort of say it was the second Nintendo-sanctioned online service if you uh, if you count uh, Satellaview, uh, you know, for the Super NES or for the Super Famicom, actually. Um, but in many ways, it was it was kind of like well, let's do this thing and, you know, let's, let's release it. It's extremely late in the life of the Nintendo 64. And, <laughs> and they did some this... weird, they did some weird internet stuff in Japan too. I mean, there's a, there's a modem for the Famicom that does mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> banking and horse race betting. And then there was a super Famicom one as well. And, you know, I think they do some of their more experimental, um, you know, turning the Famicom into a computer kind of stuff in Japan that um, we didn't get quite as much of over here. There were attempts. There was the Nintendo Nintendo network was, you know, well, it, if you read the book game over, uh, which was written in like 1992, it seems very serious that they're putting work (laughs) into the, the Nintendo network, but I don't, I don't really know how serious that got. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. And I think that in many ways, like the timing the, the timing of releasing that and the timing of, you know, when Sharkwire came out, like, you know, this is at the point when the Dreamcast had, had been released and actually had, like, decent-ish online capabilities. So it was, you know, it, it was it was fascinating. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the piece about, uh, about Sharkwire in particular is that it actually missed the 99 holiday season. So it was just like... At that point, the N64 was already kind of very late in its life cycle. So, you know, it, it, you know, it had that going against it as well. Yeah, this is a weird, really weird product timing wise. Um, I, not that I think it would have done well. I mean, spoiler alert, this is a uh, I'm assuming a lot of the people listening to it maybe have not even heard of this thing. Um, you can probably guess that this did not sell very well, did not do very well. Um, and you know, like Frank said, not a terrible idea on its face, but especially with this timing after the Dreamcast is out and offers a complete internet experience. And, you know, it's a little bit more expensive, but it's way more functional and way more built in. Um, I mean, this is this is late. This is late for the Nintendo 64. This is late in general. Well, also, I mean, even even the Dreamcast is late for like web browsing at home. I, I don't know sure. that the numbers but you know we're talking about late 99 early 2000 people have don't, home computers right by then. i don't know what the adoption rate was but i felt like mine was very late and it, mine was 1998 so uh by the time we're in 2000 i think kids are very comfortable using the computer uh to access the internet so this does not this seems i mean 
Ernie, you kind of compared it to web TV and web TV was, uh, I don't know. I don't think there's a nice way to describe web TV, right? It's kind of like the, the weird old person internet. Right. And, and, and this is the, the closest equivalent to, to this, I think would, would be web TV. Yeah, certainly. And I think it's one of those things where, um, it, you know, very much, um, you know, it, it very much is of its era. Um, I think that, I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, and I've covered a lot of stuff like this in the past. Like, uh, one of my favorite things that I covered was this thing called the mail station, which is literally just like a keyboard with a tiny LCD screen, black and white that like allows you to, to send email. It came with a long, very long, like, uh, telephone cable so you could like use it from your you, you could use it from your you know from your rocking chair you know rather than trying to t- type it out next to your phone but I, I i think that like of that era a lot of companies were just trying to figure out you know for the people that aren't already on the internet how do we get them there and <laughs> i think that you know i think that what's really fascinating about this is that the people that they tried to, they tried to get probably already had access to a computer. You know, they probably were already using the internet in some way, you know, and this is actually marketed to some degree as like, you may have a computer at home, but your brother might be on it. Your, your father might be on it. Uh, you know, use this thing instead. So. <laughs> which doesn't work though, because we're talking about multiple phone lines, which is not a thing. Yeah, I loved I loved that, which was uh, included in the article too. That uh, part of their marketing was like when your dad and the family PC seemed like they're joined at the hip. You can chat with your friends from the comfort and convenience of the coolest place in your entire house, your room. Which, like, no, you can't if your dad's on the computer, unless you have more than one phone line in your house. In which case, I don't know, you're very fancy. That's. <laughs> We'll say I, I will say I, I do not consider myself a fancy person, but I do consider myself somebody who had multiple phone lines in his house. <laughs> but but nonetheless, I, I think that the point is definitely heard. It's certainly it's certainly something that you know you you definitely needed like a little bit of an extra budget. Like I think the equivalent today would probably be somebody who uh, who you know who pays like for you know who pays for fiber versus uh, you know just living with uh, you know j- just living with the cable modem and like everybody else. <laughs> you know, I feel like this thing is one of the last gasps of the era of trying to make a video game unit uh, function as, as, as a, as a component that, that builds a computer. I don't, I can't think of, I mean, Kelsey, I'm sure you can, but I can't think of many, if any uh, devices that post date this, that, that sort of use your video game device as a computer component. Not as a computer in the in the way that the Sharkwire uses it. I mean, sure. you have you have things like the Game Boy sewing machine which are a little bit later, but that's more like we need a tiny computer and we don't want to have to, you know, put a 400-500 uh custom computer into a sewing machine. Right. And then there's like the Game Boy Advance stuff that I don't know like like wasn't there like an auto mechanic Tool yeah, so the there, there's yeah. there's things where um 
a computer e piece of hardware is still a very expensive thing to make from scratch. And so you still have some, you know, some little pokes at we're going to use a video game device that people already have access to to do that because, you know, a game right. costs $90. Um, but, but this is the last gasp of like something that Ernie, I think you even wrote about on TDM, which is the 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 age of trying to like turn your home video game console into your home computer. Yeah, there's just so many examples of 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 things like this, you know, like <laughs> in televisions, like keyboard add-on attempts, you know, the one, like, there was the real one and the one that, and the fake one, which is the one that most people saw if they did see it, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you have the ColecoVision add-on, just, you know, it's, it's funny because so many people have tried this. Most of them are officially licensed, like, you know, made by the manufacturer of the main console, by the way. You know, so that's the big exception here, I think. But almost all of them just completely tanked and failed in the market because I think ultimately it sounds better as a concept. Oh, I bought this video game console. I can upgrade it to a computer later than it actually turned out in practice. It still sounds like a good idea to me. I mean, the (laughs) history doesn't lie. It basically has never worked, but it still makes sense to me that, um, you know, you already have a game console. You already have this thing in your living room. Why not try to upgrade it into a thing you can have more uses for, but um yeah it never never really worked you know i think that one of the things that's really fascinating though is like if you kind of look to the modern day you know we just you know we just had the release of the steam deck you know this year and you know i i'm just like <laughs> and i have to admit like when i got mine you know one of the first things that i did was i went and started to uh, see if i could <laughs> get you know like some other linux installed or try to get windows installed and i think that like in many ways you know the geek who the geek who's willing to put a computer on his video game console like is out there there are very niche audience i think i I think the steam deck is as close as we'll get to like that actually making sense as a model (laughs) i also just think that it you almost need an opposite approach for there to be mass adoption. Like I'm a big believer in, I think game dedicated game consoles are not terribly long for this world, at least more than one of them. And, and I think we are going to start consolidating hardware. And, and I, I think that, you know, the day that quote unquote real video games just work on a television, I think is, is when we're kind of done with consoles. And and so I think that's sort of the opposite approach, right? It's like not trying to make your video game console into something, but it's just making your something into a video game console. Yeah, but you are coming in, a, you know, the world right now is one where literally everybody has multiple computers. So I mean, obvi- that that's the obvious approach now, but I don't know that it's the obvious approach when people don't really have computers yet. And I mean, it's kind of a moot point in the case of the Sharkwire, just because again, in in 2000, most families had a computer. If you were, you know, like it would, that adoption. No one's looking at this thing going, that's the real internet. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, we've kind of gone over why, why most of the reasons why it failed. I mean, young people were already on the internet. Um, The cost was ridiculous. Um, Everyone has a computer already. Um, 
it doesn't doesn't do multiplayer or anything cool like that, which is what you'd kind of expect from a console um, you online. Can read but, yeah, that's like the only video game <laughs> thing you can do. Yeah, yeah. but the uh, the other thing we haven't talked about yet is that it's got kind of like a complicated, weird setup. Can you talk a little bit about just like what what does this look like when this is set up in your room with your Nintendo sixty four? So you know the you know the cartridge from the front sort of looks like a very uh Bondi blue Apple iMac take on a on a Nintendo 64 cartridge which was very much of its time um but on the top of it you know were were two were two ports one a uh one a jack for a modem and the other a PS2 port for a keyboard but on the back of this on the back of this weird device was actually was actually a, a cartridge port for another Nintendo 64 cartridge. You basically, um, you know, much like other video game like cheat, you know, cheat devices, uh, you often had to put like a another cartridge on, on top of it to sort of like get past the lockout chip. So. As re as a result, like you had this device that like had another cartridge sticking out, like sort of, you know, just it it, it looked it looked really strange. Like it it was just like it it looks completely wrong for what for for what a cartridge plugged into a Nintendo sixty four should look like. <laughs> well, and and like a game genie and all of those other things, even like a regular game shark, you put a cartridge in there, but that's the cartridge you're like doing the cheat codes for. So these these things are related, you know? Like if you're putting Super Mario World in your game genie in your Super Nintendo you're looking at the Super Mario codes or whatever, and then you're playing Super Mario World, and that's why that's plugged in there. I mean, obviously, it is also to get around the lockout chip, but, like, it makes a kind of sense. But you're just trying to get on the internet with this, but you have to, like, plug Super Mario 64 into the back of it or something, and that just, it doesn't, you're not doing anything with that game. It's just the security thing. It just, it feels very, um, the ways that you have to get around unlicensed things with that feel very uh, like a difficult thing to ask of a consumer. Like you're asking them to do something that feels weird. Yeah, it's definitely the Super Noah's Arc 3D of uh, of internet uh, video game devices. Uh, you know that were able to be purchased in the late 90s. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> deep cut yeah. <laughs> um so yeah this this thing is a it's a weird blue cartridge that requires another cartridge to be plugged into it and two wires one of which is your keyboard which is another blue thing and it's just i mean it's 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 kind of a lot it feels like a lot <laughs> yeah it, it totally is <laughs> So, I mean, what, what if anything is the after effect here? I mean, this thing apparently lasts for like three years. Um, and I mean, what, what happens to the companies involved? What happens to the brands? I mean, what, what is the legacy of this thing? If anything, um, you know, it's, it's really fascinating, but, um, the game shark, which feels like it should have lasted longer. It seemed like it was a decent brand name, you know, it should have it should have st stuck around a little bit longer, you know, than it did. Um, but 
Interact, the company that that brought it to the U.S., um, they their parent company uh, Recoton, they went bankrupt, and this ended up shuttering the Sharkwire service, and it led to Game Sharks, you know, Game Sharks name being pulled away from the action replay devices entirely. Uh, Mad Cats actually came into ownership of Game Shark, but they ended up retiring the name and. As a result of that, um, you know, uh, Daytel eventually started selling the action replay in the U.S. You know, directly with the name that makes no sense, but still, you know, but still has like a multi-decade legacy, I guess. <laughs> and that's why we have like Nintendo DS action replay and, and that sort of thing. It is, mm-hmm. It's a it's a weird kind of a weird convoluted history. Yep. Uh, just as a quick test, uh, GameShark.com goes nowhere. GameGenie.com still around. GameGenie.com, your game is my command. Uh, 13,000 cheats available on this website. Wow. Who so. who owns that website? Dan World Incorporated, copyright <laughs> 1996 to 2002. Yeah. Part of the cool. Dan World Network, which also includes DanWorld.com. Um, I don't think this has anything to do. <laughs> <laughs> with with, uh, with the Comerica Codemasters, whatever uh, game genie, I think. Uh, well, thank think you, Dan World, bought... for for keeping the legacy alive. <laughs> I feel like he could be sued. Uh, I'm assuming it's a man named Dan um, by whoever owns the trademark, because I think there can easily be confu- consumer confusion because this is a website about cheating in video games. Um, that said. It stops at the Xbox 360, so I don't I don't believe that Dan World is is very actively uh, uh, maintaining GameGenie.com. Mm. Thanks for paying for it, though. Yeah, thanks, Dan World. <laughs> uh, yeah, anything else? Should we just wrap it there? Any any last uh, any last comments on uh, on on the Game Shark or the Shark Wire or or any other related topics? Um, I, I think it's a really fascinating little device. Um, it it reflects a certain era of, of video games where I, I think I think companies were willing to try things. You know that you know it, and it's it's really interesting in part because they at least had some sort of budget behind it. Like you know, Interact was a pretty decently sized company for its day. It you know it had like. It had a reputation. It was able to get in stores pretty easily, you know. And I think that in many ways, it so many so many devices of this nature are usually like by companies that feel like they're a little fly by night. So to see one from something that could be considered like legitimate that like had you know had a degree of success in the market like that that's pretty fascinating to me but i think i think overall like you know it's it's always fascinating when when things go on the internet that really shouldn't i guess <laughs> <laughs> well uh so this was uh an article published in tedium your publication um not everything there's video game related but we like it anyway around here but uh for those who aren't aware, why don't you just tell us about your project? Uh, yeah, I've been working on TDM since about 2015. Um, basically, I started with this weird idea of like, 
Well, I had this site that was uh, focused on short things. It was called Short Form Blog. It was a news site. Let's see if I can come up with something that is essentially the exact opposite of it. So let's do something that has really long articles about topics that are of no relevance to anybody. And let's see where it takes me. <laughs> and, um, you know, as a result, um, almost eight years later, I'm still doing it. And, uh, you know, basically, I tend to cover a wide variety of things, um, mostly technology, a lot of times not. Um, I've covered I've covered all sorts of weird things. Um, I I at some point covered a uh, a bridge video game device. In case you know the card game Bridge, um, there was a video game device that was released in the UK for it sometime in the eighties. You know, played just one game Bridge, and uh, you know I think that uh, you know from there, like I'm I'm always interested in trying to find new angles in terms of you know what's what's out there you know what sort of what i can find like beyond like sort of the you know you know ask a dumb question at google like find you know find a find a result like you know what else is out, out there beyond that and that leads me to a lot of places like the internet archive it leads me to newspaper websites it leads me to google books it leads me to you know academic papers and Google patents and stuff. And, you know, many times this stuff crisscrosses into video games. Many times it crisscrosses into computing and I have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. I mean, we really like it. It's good research. Um, I think, especially if you are a bit of a weirdo like me, that is like, why, why were these strange things made? Why, why did someone make a, a, a device that only plays bridge? I don't know. Uh, there's always at least something interesting behind it, which, you know, the, the name tedium <laughs> is kind of, it, it's kind of the opposite of that, but I love it. It's always cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is an appropriate name because you, you are like finding topics that, that are not necessarily interesting on, on their surface. And well, I guess, okay. They're always interesting. Once you get past to me. the tedium, it's interesting. <laughs> well, Ernie, gosh, thanks a lot uh, for joining us here on the Video Game History Hour. Uh, we'll link to uh, both this piece and, and tedium in general um, in the show notes. But for those listening, uh, where can they find you and tedium? Uh, yeah, um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my uh, my username there is uh, short form Ernie S H O R T F O R M E R N I E. And uh, you can find me and my writing at uh, tdm.co. Great. We had a good time. I hope to have you back. Thank you, Ernie. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at GameHistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>